Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The federal budget being proposed by the Trump administration reportedly slashes funding for the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay from $73 million to $5 million. For the past 30 years, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and the District of Columbia have been working to restore the bay. It hasn't always been smooth, and a lot of money has been spent to make it happen. But there has been significant progress, especially in the last few years. But President Trump has proposed cutting the Environmental Protection Agency's budget drastically and reducing regulations. So what would it mean for the Chesapeake Bay? Joining us on today's program is Will Baker, who is president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Mr. Baker, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Also, Harry Campbell is executive director of the Pennsylvania chapter of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Harry, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. If you have a question or comment, like to join in on the conversation, 1-800-729-7532. That's the number to call. Or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, this uh, will really took uh, a lot of people by surprise, maybe not so much surprise as uh, when they saw the amount of the cut that is reportedly, and we have to use the word reportedly because this has not been made official yet, but what is being considered for the cut, a 93% cut in the Chesapeake Bay cleanup. Uh, A lot of people looked at that and said, wow, that's a huge cut. What would that mean to the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay? Well, first, Scott, it it absolutely is a surprise. And, And why do I say that? One, the Chesapeake Bay is a national treasure. Two, for 30 years, every president has supported cleaning up the bay and putting money behind it. And three, um, it's it's a non-controversial bipartisan program that's working. Uh, it involves six states, obviously Pennsylvania, and the federal agencies, and it's working. The bay is getting better. So we're very surprised by it. What it would mean would be basically shutting down the federal government's role in saving Chesapeake Bay and all the rivers and streams like the Susquehanna that feed it. Clean water is not a luxury we should come to desire. It's a, it's, it should be a right of all Americans, and we're very surprised. Well, I, you know, Harry and I were talking off the air a little bit, and I asked about a surprise. You had no clue that this was coming? Absolutely none. Mm. I mean, there was not even a whisper here or there with the new administration coming in. Well, certainly there have been concerns uh, across the board about funding cuts to EPA. But they had been under the guise or under the umbrella of some of the broader programs like the Clean Power Rule, the Waters of the United States, in which while we agree, admittedly, one could argue that's going out a little bit into the um, out the spectrum. But cleaning up and saving Chesapeake Bay has been something that, well, Ronald Reagan got it started in his State of the Union message when he said, we must begin the long process to clean up this great national treasure. You know, you you said non-controversial and bipartisan support, and and that is today. But as I said in my introduction, it hasn't always been smooth. And by that, I was referring to the very beginning. It took a little bit of, of time to get states on board with this. But today, and one of the things that you did mention about the, the federal role, there seems to have been more progress made in the cleanup of the bay since EPA got more involved just in the last few years, correct? 
Absolutely. And it, it all started with an executive order by President Obama, which basically said, we're going to take the best science we have, get the amount of pollution that needs to be reduced numerically, divide that up among all the states pro rata, and EPA will be the referee on the field to see that they get it done. EPA will not, this is the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, it did not say that EPA will tell the states how to do it. That has always been the prerogative of the states. All the states voluntarily agreed to do this. This goes back to 2010, and they've been making progress. Um, the federal government role has really been to be the referee on the field, and that's been very important to the downstream states so that if the upstream states don't make the progress they promised to do, EPA can step in and impose sanctions. Now, one of the key words you just used there was voluntarily. Uh, you know, and I'm going to ask in just a moment, we can talk about what the states will do, whether they'll step up, whether they will reduce their roles. But that's kind of a, a big thing that states have voluntarily gotten on board with this, right? It's huge. All the governors have signed and, and re-upped their acceptance, their approval, their agreement uh, 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 repeatedly during those, uh, those years from 2010 until now. So it, it absolutely was voluntary agreement by the states to participate in this regional program, this state-federal partnership that a judge in Harrisburg said was the finest example of federal, federal what was it, Harry, federal, co-op, federal cooperative federalism she'd ever seen. Mm. So, Harry, let's talk about the role of states. I mean, obviously, Pennsylvania is your main focus. But what happens with the state role if this cut comes to be? Well, Scott, it could have uh, significant, if not devastating, impacts as it pertains to Pennsylvania's efforts to clean up our rivers and streams, first and foremost, that ultimately flow into the Chesapeake Bay. This, is, this effort, really, is about Pennsylvania's rivers and streams, and they just so happen to be the rivers and streams that flow into the Chesapeake Bay primarily. We have 19,000 miles of rivers and streams right here in Pennsylvania that don't meet water quality standards and are considered impaired due to excessive amounts of pollution. When we restore the health and condition of those rivers and streams, we are simultaneously restoring not only clean water for recreation, but for drinking water, but also increasing economic activity, reducing nuisance flooding, and having farms that are actually more productive in many ways. So this effort uh, could have a substantial impact on Pennsylvania's ability to achieve these overall goals and commitments that the state themselves have made. In particular, for instance, over the last, well, since about 2003, Pennsylvania has diverted roughly $2.4 billion in environmental funding to other uses or actually eliminated it altogether. Simultaneously, the agencies, particularly the Department of Environmental Protection, the Department of Natural Resources, and the Department of Agriculture, are suffering from chronic underfunding that has resulted in staffing levels that are approaching that of 1994. One of the unique roles that the federal government and the Department of Environmental Protection play is working collaboratively and constructively together together 
on this very complex and challenging issue. That's why when Ronald Reagan announced that this effort was going to be underway and uh, that the federal cooperative would be established, it's taken that long to actually start to really see measurable, tangible, quantifiable improvements, not only in the Chesapeake Bay, but in the Susquehanna River watershed as well. Real monitoring data showing improvement. So this cooperative effort uh, could be substantially hindered, if not deconstructed, with these funding cuts. I, I want to talk a little bit more spe in specifics about some of the things you mentioned, but let's talk about Pennsylvania's role. And by Pennsylvania's role, I mean state legislators, the state legislature. What do you see happening? And not just with the legislature, but you mentioned DEP. And we've talked about this a lot recently on this program, about uh, how DEP is understaffed when it comes to inspections, water quality in particular. But uh, what do you you see happening or what are the potential uh, impacts of this uh, on the state, state government in particular? Yeah, and it, it could have, as I mentioned, pretty significant, if not devastating impacts on the ability of the of the environmental programs within DEP to meet these challenges in a collaborative and cost-effective way, because right now they're operating at triage levels in many cases, and significant programs, whether most recently the Safe Drinking Water Act, but other programs that are the Clean Water Program, the Chesapeake Bay Program, the Coal Reclamation Programs, all have been cited and others by the federal government as being underfunded and not able to meet basic federal regulation and standards. And so Pennsylvania, despite these challenging times that we face economically, uh, is facing also significant uh, abilities to actually uh, implement clean and health and clean water laws in the state of Pennsylvania. And so if these further cuts, because the Department of Environmental Protection relies almost 30 percent of its funding from federal sources, could further hinder their ability to protect Pennsylvania's economy and our quality of life and our health. But what about legislators, though? Have you heard anything from Pennsylvania state legislators as to uh, you know, whether the state would provide more funding, for example, uh, whether the state would go along with these cuts and reduce its commitment to the clean of, of, of the streams and rivers and the bay? Well, they're certainly concerned because when there's these programs are being cited as uh, not meeting basic minimum standards from the federal government, there's concern that those, those programs actually would then be taken over by the federal government because of our inability to actually administer them properly. So there is concern within the legislature. They're balancing that uh, on the unfortunate reality of a over $2 billion structural deficit and the other challenges that our Commonwealth faces in the budget. Uh, so there's a lot of concern about how do we find these funding sources or can we find funding sources to help bolster those programs so as to reallocate existing but also new funding sources to help bolster those programs. One specific item I noticed you didn't mention, and that is has to do with natural gas drilling and uh, fracking here in Pennsylvania. Now, your organization has not come out in opposition to this. I mean, I don't know whether you've even taken a stand on it, but I know it hasn't been one of those things. You've looked at it kind of, and tell me if I'm wrong here, looked at it kind of as an overall picture of water quality. But I know the, the timing's not lost on a lot of people that at a time when Pennsylvania uh, is using fracking and we're drilling for natural gas, it has added something else to the mix as far as water quality goes. 
Well, certainly at a potentially at a, at a local level, whenever there's those land disturbances or activities, there can have that potential impact, including from the natural gas industry, the unconventional drilling industry. But certainly, we've looked at it from a comprehensive uh, cumulative impact approach and have concerns about what what the totality of all the industrial industrial activities could have on the ability of Pennsylvania to meet its Chesapeake Bay goal, goals and obligations. So, Will, let me get back to you. That $73 million, how is that money spent? It is spent for grants to the states. DEP, for instance, Pennsylvania DEP, would take a hit of about $6.5 million a year. It's spent on assistance to farmers and municipalities to reduce pollution. And one of the most important things, it's spent on monitoring. If we don't have scientific monitoring from baseline to current conditions, how do we know whether the, project, whether the strategy is working? How do we know how to do course corrections, et cetera? It's spent on technical assistance, and it's spent on coordinating the entire six-state region into one specific effort for the Bay just the way science tells us they must they must operate. You said earlier that if this cut was made down to $5 million, it would take away the federal role almost completely. But give us a sense, if you had to deal with this cut and spend $5 million, how would that money be spent? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a very tough question. I mean, I think at the very least we should maintain a a federal Chesapeake Bay office to help facilitate the six states, the governors and their their staffs and their their agencies working together as a single effort for the Bay. But that would not go terribly far. It's a big region, a lot of states, and the technical assistance, the grants, the uh, cost share funding, all of that would be severely missed. And I, I just wanted to, to say one thing about agriculture, Scott. A lot of people say that, you know, there's tension between agriculture and clean water. And I, I just, I, 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 that frustrates me because I think to a large part that's simply not true. On this specific subject, Chris Thompson, who is the Lancaster County District Director, county, conservation, county, county conservationist, he said this simply would make it very difficult to continue to operate. And Dan Rank, who is a Paradise Township Supervisor, Vice President of the Lancaster County Farm Bureau, was also quoted. He, he's worried about these cuts pulling the rug out from underneath the farmers. He said it's not, meaning the Bay Program, it's not a hammer held over farmers' heads it's farmers wanting to use them. It's in our best interest, and it's in the best interest of society. And that's a direct quote from the Lancaster paper. All right, we're going to talk more about farming in Pennsylvania in just a few minutes. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Welcome back to Smart Talk. This portion of the program, we're talking about the Chesapeake Bay cleanup and the Trump administration reportedly, it has not been made official yet, reportedly slashing funding for the Bay cleanup from $73 million to $5 million and the impact that would have on the cleanup. If you have a question or comment, you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF. WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that is 1-800-729-7532. Our guest today, Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and Harry Campbell, the executive director of the Pennsylvania chapter of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Let's take a phone call now from John in Lancaster. John, you're on the air. I've got a uh, political comment and question. Okay. Uh, it's if you look at the counties that border the Susquehanna River and the Chesapeake Bay, I think you'll find that overwhelmingly they voted in the last election for the Republican administration. And what do people expect if they vote against their own interests? Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much for your call. You know, and this was a point that I was going to bring up, is that elections have results. And he is absolutely correct that the counties here in Pennsylvania, anyway, that border the Susquehanna River overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. So I guess the Trump administration would make the point, Will, that uh, this is what the people wanted. This is what the people were voting for. Well, you'll have to ask the people if that's what they wanted. (laughs) Nothing that we hear suggests that they want to see dirty water in the rivers and streams in Pennsylvania or the bay downstream. So I I just think it's a disconnect. Um, I also am, Scott, I'm a hopeless optimist. You wouldn't do this work for 40 years as I've done it if you're not. I still believe that the Trump administration and the Pruitt EPA – will not institute this level of cut, and I believe there's a chance they will maintain full funding. Because why not? It's working, all the things I said before, it's non-controversial to the largest extent. Why wouldn't they want to be associated with something so valuable that's working that can be a worldwide success story for the United States? And I understand your optimism, but at the same time, getting back to the election, one of the main themes now, Donald Trump on the campaign trail did not say we are going to make a 93 percent cut in funding for the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay. But what he did say was that, you know, he did talk about cuts in regulations, for example. That was a big part of his campaign. Uh, Regulations. I don't know. If you look at regulations here in Pennsylvania and the other states, probably most of them, and Harry, you can tell me, but probably most of them had to do with um, sewage, uh, you know, and sewage, sewer bills and things like that. So, I mean, Harry, I'm going to direct this to you. People, when they didn't hear specifically what regulations would be cut, but they did hear that regulations would be cut. Well, certainly that and that uh, for the political audience for the campaign, that was certainly something that the administration or at that time, uh, Donald Trump was advocating for. And as you indicated, elections have consequences. 
the types of regulations, though, that, that uh, affect our clean water are bipartisanly supported. And in fact, Pennsylvania has some of the most longstanding and significant uh, rules and requirements for uh, agricultural activities, all farms, as well as wastewater treatment plants and even uh, for some urban and suburban stormwater developments that are predicated on not only just protecting our rivers and streams, but again, reducing nuisance flooding, uh, protecting human health and welfare, and having a direct economic benefit and return on Pennsylvanians in themselves. And so these regulations, some of them are federally tied, but most of them, a large percentage of them, are actually regulations that Pennsylvania has decided are important, not the federal government. Are there regulations, though, and Will would jump in here at any time, that uh, the feds have instituted that possibility of them those uh, regulations being rolled back? Well, that's that we'll have to see. So far, all that they have been talking about or that has been reported in terms of the Bay work, the six-state uh, Chesapeake Bay partnership work, is this cut in funding. Okay, so you haven't heard anything about regulation so far? So far, nothing. Do you anticipate, I mean, uh, you said that the funding cut was a surprise. Do you anticipate anything? Well, And this I, is with the, the, what you just said a few minutes ago, that you're a, a hopeless optimist, too. <laughs> hopeless so optimist. I'm going to hold you to that. I think what we will see is an attempt to reduce or cut back on broad nationwide regulatory programs. I don't think they're going to be successful in getting those uh, cuts made, for instance, to clean air. And, and here is actually one where a, a broad federal program could infect water quality in Pennsylvania and the Bay downstream, because much of the nitrogen pollution coming into the Bay, about 20 to 30 percent by some estimates, comes from airborne pollutants, from power plants, from mobile sources, uh, cars and trucks, things like that. So rolling back regulations that protect air quality can also impact water quality. That's that is one that does concern me. Well, what you know, it's always a good time when you know I have uh, you on the program, the two of you on the program, to talk about the progress that has been made, what you're trying to achieve here. So. Will, what progress has been made in the cleanup of the Bay, and not necessarily over the last 30 years, but in particular since 2010 when EPA did get involved? Okay, I'll talk about the Bay and let Harry pick up local water quality okay. improvements. So right. in, the, in the downstream Chesapeake Bay, 200-mile-long tidal Chesapeake Bay, here's what we're seeing that has improved in the last decade. The water is far more clear and that's an important scientific measurement. It means less algal blooms, overabundance of algae, which is caused by too much nitrogen and phosphorus, and less sediment in the water. The benefit of that is multiple for fish and shellfish, but also for underwater grasses, which help to reoxygenate the water. They need sunlight to be able to penetrate. They are improving. And improving right at the mouth of the Susquehanna in what's called the Susquehanna Flats, which is terrific back to pre-Agnes levels, pre-1972 levels. You're also seeing better uh, populations of blue crabs, of oysters, and of rockfish, what we call striped bass. And finally, 
the dead zones in the bay, those areas which have such low dissolved oxygen that fish and shellfish can't survive, those dead zones are retreating after centuries of getting worse. That's an enormous improvement. Harry, what about uh, Pennsylvania waterways? Scott, the simple fact of the matter is that the investments Pennsylvania has made in clean water are having tangible, measurable returns. Of 23 monitoring stations that are within the Susquehanna River watershed in particular, in Pennsylvania, New York, but primarily in Pennsylvania, of 23, 19 of those water quality monitoring stations are showing real and long-term reductions in pollution, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment. That is real, that is measurable, and it's sustaining itself. Is there more work to be done? Absolutely. We have 19,000 miles of rivers and streams in Pennsylvania that don't meet standards right now and are considered polluted. But these investments that we've been making, these investments that are coming from these federal sources, like efforts in Lancaster County to exclude livestock from streams and put in uh, trees alongside streams and keep soils and nutrients on the land where they do good instead of in the water where they pollute. They're having real benefits, real measurable, tangible returns. And so these efforts that Pennsylvania has been undertaking for the last number of decades, but certainly in the last 10 years, are really showing impact. Something that uh, Will said earlier, Harry, about, uh, you know, he said it upsets him that it's been portrayed sometimes that there is this... uh, um, I don't know, adversarial relationship between uh, agriculture in Pennsylvania and, uh, you know, the Chesapeake Bay cleanup. But something that uh, he also mentioned when talking about how, the, what kind of impact this would have with the, the, the cut is that there would not be money, or maybe not as much money, available to farmers to comply with Chesapeake Bay regulations. Now, you know, I think that there were farmers who came grudgingly to the table because, you know, let's face it, their bottom lines are tight. And over the years, you've heard farmers say, you know, I just can't afford to make these changes to control manure, manure pits. You know, maybe some of the things that it's actually probably one of the cheaper things to plant trees along streams, get the cattle out of the, the, the streams and that kind of thing. But if the federal government is not providing funding to help farmers to comply with these regulations, then what happens? And that's the million-dollar question, no pun intended. Uh, The federal government and the role that uh, they play is to help through a variety of programs, including the Federal Farm Bill program primarily, uh, is to help with the technical and financial assistance to help design and implement many of these conservation practices. And these conservation practices require farmers not only to uh, maintain them and, and over, over long periods of time, but then to adopt them into their operations. So it takes uh, adaptive management on the farmer's part, but they also have to pony up a proportion of the cost share. So it's not just the federal taxpayer or the federal government that's providing this assistance. The individual landowner has to actually be, have skin in the game, if you will. And so without that 
proportion coming from the federal governments in this case, and in some cases the state government as well, uh, then you lose that partnership, that partnership that's been around for decades now that has resulted in some of the improvements I just mentioned earlier. Uh, so there could be substantial deceleration, if you will, less uh, conservation practices being implemented on the ground because the farmers who are interested in standing in line saying, I would like to do this sort of work, won't have the assistance to help design, engineering design the practices, and then ultimately get them in the ground. Well, hey, as you Scott, know... Can I, can sure. I jump in on that yeah, topic sure, go right ahead. a second? Harry said it before, but it bears repeating. All that's being asked is to keep the soil and the chemicals on the farms. Now, we know that can be tough at times and expensive. That's what the cost share monies, the support helps the farmer do. So it's beneficial to the farm if they can get these practices in place. Second, the federal government has played a big role, but I just got to tell the listeners what the Chesapeake Bay Foundation does across the entire six-state watershed. But in Pennsylvania, Harry, correct me if I'm wrong, we have five or is it six full-time staff working in on the field with farmers, bringing monies that we have raised from private sources. And I want to give a shout out to Pittsburgh's Richard King Mellon Foundation, who has been terrific, and from individual members and corporations that support us to help the farmers do this work. That's the private sector side. We also help them bring public monies. The, the, the farm bill is one of the key, the uh, USDA monies is one of the critical sources to help the farmers. But we've been helping farmers with private money as well as public money for decades. Mm -hmm. All right, we have a phone call here. You're on the air, go right ahead. Hi, this is Pam from Harrisburg. I'd just like to say that with all these cuts, our income, our federal income tax will not go down any appreciable amount. Yet, meanwhile, we're going to get all of this wonderful benefit of going back to 1870 pollution yeah, and I, we're, we're losing your call, Pat. Thank you very much for your call. But I think, I hope you guys heard it. I'll just repeat it. She said that, uh, you know, our income taxes, for the most part, won't go down, although, you know, that has been proposed by uh, the Trump administration again, reportedly, because nothing's official, but that was what was campaigned on. But we will go back to 1970s level pollutions. And I think that that's something, and both of you can weigh in on this, that's something that even if... You are someone who uh, feels that uh, the environmental the environmental movement over the last uh, forty years has gone too far. That no one wants to go back to what we were like in the early seventies, and I mean we, meaning the United States overall. Will well, I, you've said it, and our caller said it. So I I, I just want to underline it absolutely. Yeah. Something else that uh, we had a caller who brought this up, and it's not directly related to this issue of, con cutting, fu of uh, cutting funding, but I just want to bring it up. And she was talking about the last 40 years, how the Chesapeake Bay has been overfished. Now, you know, you can comment on that if you'd like. But one thing I would like to kind of tag along on top of that is that, uh, you know, what with the cleanup of the bay, this is an industry that not just fishing, but crabbing, you know, people who rely on the bay for their living 
probably have had seen a great improvement in making a living, Will. Well, that's absolutely true, Scott. And I think what you, you, the caller you referenced is, is absolutely correct about overfishing. Here's the three. I don't mean to make this too simple, but it really is, it really is basic. Here's the three-point plan to save the bay. You don't put more pollution into the bay than the system can assimilate in a given year. You don't remove the natural filters, such as trees, wetlands, underwater grasses, that nature gives us to help reduce the impact of pollution. And you don't take more fish and shellfish out of the system than nature can put back in any given year. So pollution, habitat, good fisheries management, those are the keys. And Scott, those benefits don't just happen to be in the bay. Uh, right. and, and in fact, the benefits that we're talking about here in Pennsylvania are to the tune of roughly $6.2 billion in natural benefits if we implement our commitments to the Chesapeake Bay through healthier soils and greater farm productivity, reduced flooding, cleaner air, uh, cleaner drinking water, and, and therefore reduced treatment costs. All of those cumulatively have economic and natural benefits to the tune of $6.2 billion, according to a, a study that we commissioned and uh, was peer-reviewed and published. Mm -hmm. and, and Harry, and we should say, and, and ask the listeners to, to listen to what our colleagues at Trout Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited, just to pick two, say about how important clean water is and natural habitat habitats are to sportsmen and women. Mm. Uh, gentlemen, we're out of time for this portion of the program, so uh, let me ask you, Will, what happens next? I mean, I, I have to keep repeating because it is true that none of this has been made official yet, uh, so we're kind of speculating here, even though, uh, you know, there has been there have been a lot of leaks and, uh, you know, with exact figures and that kind of thing. So what goes on next? Okay, here's my here's my aspiration. President Trump, Administrator Scott Pruitt, come on out to the Chesapeake Bay. Come to the rivers and streams in Pennsylvania and let us show you what has been achieved for a relatively small amount of money. You'll be very impressed. Will Baker is president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and Harry Campbell is executive director of the Pennsylvania chapter. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The PBS documentary film Military Medicine Beyond the Battlefield will be shown tomorrow evening at 7.15 at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle. What the film describes is advances in medicine that came about or were progressed, or have progressed, I should say, from what was learned from injuries to men and women who fought mostly in Afghanistan and Iraq. Joining us to talk about the film and some of the progress that we have made over the past uh, decade or so is Dr. Rory Cooper. He's director of Human Engineering Research Laboratories at the University of Pittsburgh, and he appears in the film. Dr. Cooper, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. Good morning. If you have a question or comment, would like to join in this portion of the program, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You can send an email to smarttalk at org. Leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter. We are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. I want to play a clip from the film, which kind of says a whole lot about uh, what 
what we're looking for, looking to do when it comes to injuries suffered on the battlefield. The first thing I asked him, look, um, I want to learn how to play catch with my kid. Because I have a lot of fond memories of me and my dad playing catch and teaching me how to play baseball and stuff like that. Those were a lot of special moments in my life where, where I do remember and, and I wanted to give that to my kids. Having one arm, I had no idea. How the heck am I supposed to do this? Any time we will get you to catch with you with your kids. That is retired Army Sergeant Ramon Padilla. He served two tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2007, he lost his right arm to an RPG attack. And uh, he talked about uh, what he really lost in that attack. So when we're talking about this film, we're talking about the improvements that we've made over the past uh, decade or decade and a half. Yes, we have been fighting in Afghanistan for, for that long. Dr. Cooper, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Uh, people want to, this, you know, our, our service members that become wounded, injured, or ill, they they want to get back into life as, as much as we can possibly help them do that. The film depicts many of the advances uh, that we've made in the wars uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. What are some of the most uh, significant uh, advances we've made? Um, well, probably one of the most significant advances we made has been on uh, battlefield care and um, an evacuation. The uh, the number of people that were able to survive and actually creating wounds that uh, we had never seen before uh, has been tremendous. We we're the we learned to get people uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan actually back to level one trauma centers like Walter Reed and, and, uh, and um, Brook Army Medical Center, you know, often within 24 hours, uh, quite frequently within 72 hours. And the um, combat uh, surgical hospitals in, uh, in countries, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, were also able to do some really amazing uh, things. And of course, the, uh, the talent of the, the medics and the corpsmen uh, over this, that had developed over this time period, the tools that they had available to them uh, saved a tremendous amount of lives. So that that actually presented new challenges for us in, in rehabilitation because uh, we were now presented with with uh, service members who um, had multiple and complex injuries, and um, we wanted to work with them to get them back into life as much as we possibly could. Um, I think the other thing we were challenged by is um, because it's an all-volunteer force, many of them wanted to continue to serve, uh, either in active duty or active reserve guard or um, as a civilian. And uh, uh, that, uh, in some ways, um, was a new phenomena in setting the bar even higher. You know, I'm, I'm curious about that because... You know, we have heard even, and I have to admit that most of this is coming from movies or TV or whatever, but uh, that in World War II, for example, Korea, Vietnam, that when a, a, someone in the service would suffer a major injury, they would be told, well, here's your ticket home. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear that even though many of these men and women suffered major injuries, they, they wanted to find a way to continue to serve. Yes, yeah. Well, it's, I think um, 
it was it's just a it's a little it's a different generation it's a different war and it's a different culture in the military now uh so um no we did have even in world war ii we did have soldiers that uh wanted to continue on active duty and and were in some cases afforded the opportunity uh even uh, even in vietnam uh that was the case too uh the uh you know two real notable examples are General Fred Franks, who went on to be the commander of Seventh Corps in the first Gulf War, and uh, uh, General Eric Shinseki, who uh, wound up uh, becoming the uh, chief of staff of the Army and later the Secretary of the Veterans Affairs. Now, both of them uh, had lost uh, lower limbs and, um, in Vietnam. So there have been some, there are some sort of notable exceptions. Uh, just uh, the numbers weren't our. Uh, in the past, were not what they were in this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's because it's a it's a career, it's a lifestyle uh, for for many of, in the military today. Um, it's different. It's different too. Um, less than 0.6 percent of Americans are serving in uniform. Uh, less than six percent of living Americans have ever served in uniform. Uh, so um, there's a there's a passion, a dedication. Uh, and, a, and a commitment to selfless service in this generation that is um, somewhat unique. And I think something else you touched on could play a role in that as well, is that we have an all-volunteer force as opposed to uh, you know, many who were drafted in uh, previous wars. But I just want to follow up on something you had said earlier, uh, you know, travel time. In Vietnam, the average soldier who was injured on the battlefield in Vietnam, it took them 45 days to go from battlefield to the U.S. Now, as you mentioned, there are times where it happens overnight, sometimes 72 hours, but the average is four days. That is significant. You touched on this a little bit, but what happened that we made so many advances that uh, we can cut it down by 90%? Well, uh, one of the, the advances, you know, the, of course, the advances is in the um, in the air travel, right? I mean, we can we can we could use um, the helicopters that we had to evacuate people from the battlefield uh, were used much more extensively in this conflict than in previous conflicts. Although introduced in Korea and then expanded in Vietnam, their capabilities in this conflict ex- uh, grew even further. And then the fact that the um, Air Force had the capability of, of basically of flying intensive care units and trauma units that could get people uh, rapidly back, uh, primarily to uh, launch tool Germany. In some cases, though, um, especially after about 2007, 2009 timeframe, it would fly all the way back to the United States uh, using in-flight refueling. And um, so those capabilities meant that we could um, – keep people in the air uh, longer, get them transported faster back to where they needed to be. The the technology today we have is so far advanced compared to, uh, say, during the days of uh, the Vietnam War. What about robotic advances? I mean, there are people who would just not recognize what we do today with uh, robots and robotic advances. Uh, that's correct, and you know that's that's kind of in my sweet spot. It is the um, 
I mean, the, and, and, their, and robotics are advancing at a tremendous rate. I mean, it just uh, and a lot of it has been stimulated by by the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq and some of the other areas of the world. The um, you know we have now uh, upper we have prosthetic limbs, so prosthetic arms and prosthetic legs that have robotic components in them. So you might be familiar with the uh, DARPA, that's the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency and VA um, Advanced Robotic Arm for upper extremity amputees also had been used with spinal cord injury using direct brain interfaces. Some of that work was done right here at, at the VA and the University of Pittsburgh. And um, as well as lower extremity prostheses where you have uh, uh, robotic ankles and knees so that a person can walk more um, more similarly and go over uneven terrain and climb up downstairs in robotic wheelchairs. And we're able to now uh, climb curbs and keep people, um, their seat orientation or their attitude uh, control, just like we would use in, in helicopters or satellite control, has now got into power wheelchairs to allow people to, uh, our, our veterans to um, to march the trails of Gettysburg or, or, um, or negotiate curbs in their hometown or climb steps and stairs. Those, those are all really advances. Uh, you know, wheelchair-mounted robotic arms are, are also evolving in that area. And, and a lot of the work that you see in self-driving cars is, uh, is a spin-off of, um, of our uh, autonomous vehicles that have been used for military applications as well. You uh, which I, Go ahead. Which, will be, which I think will help our wounded warriors, too, because let's say you're um, uh, become cognitively impaired or, or visually impaired or blinded, for example, uh, and can no longer drive um, in a few years, you know, it depends on who you, who's, who's got the better crystal ball, but somebody, somewhere between 2025 and 2035, uh, you might just be able to uh, have a car that drives itself. You mentioned that this is your sweet spot. Yes, it is a part of what you do for a living. Uh, you were injured when you were hit by a truck while biking on a base in Germany uh, in 1980, and you became instrumental in creating a better better wheelchair. Uh Plus, you also have a collection of historic wheelchairs, I understand. But talk about that. Why did you feel the need to develop a better wheelchair? What was needed? Well, what was needed was the wheelchair that I got was essentially the same wheelchair that veterans got returning from World War II. Uh, it was an 80-pound uh, chrome and steel behemoth and um, really only came in three sizes, uh, 16, 18, and 20 inches wide, um, and uh, it was literally, you know, impossible to put in a car and tremendously painful to propel, and um, I just, it just, it just didn't seem like it was the right thing for us to be doing, and um, I have, you know, my parents had an automotive machine shop when I was growing up, and um, so I took, uh, in my commander of the army had encouraged me to study engineering after I was injured and so I, I decided to apply my talents to um, solving my own problem but my friends problems As I was going through rehab there were still a lot of Vietnam vets um, in the VA hospitals or uh, in, involved in outpatient and at the same time uh, wheelchair sports was really growing and some great veterans like Jim Martinson uh, uh, and my peer mentor you know, Tim Davis were 
attempted to play wheelchair basketball and wheelchair racing and um, wanted to be active, and it seems like that was something that I could do is help allow our veterans and, and everybody with a disability to be more active, to pursue their vocational pursuits, um, spend time with their families, participate in their schools, churches, and communities, and um, and also stay healthy by participating in sports. Uh, you know, as you know, the, the military is a fitness culture. Uh, I was a pretty good runner in the Army, and I still try to stay in shape today. And um, we needed to afford those opportunities for our military veterans. Some of the other advances that we've made, just to list a few of them that uh, will be depicted in the film, uh, growing human organs outside of the of the body, breakthroughs in regenerative tissue growth, uh, spray on skin. Regenerative regenerative medicine reduces the amount of skin grafts. Exoskeleton powered limbs. Those are some of the things that uh, you can see in this film. But one of the biggest challenges, Dr. Cooper, that we face uh, is brain injuries. That this is something that, uh, you know, even though we have made advances, it still is probably the biggest challenge that we face an injury on the battlefield. Would you agree with that? I would. I would probably uh, say actually polytrauma is the great biggest challenge that we face, and polytrauma is it, it commonly defined as um, a brain injury in combination with some other disability. So it could be brain injury and amputation, spinal cord injury, vision loss, hearing loss, uh, because that only complicates the life in general and, and the rehab process. And um, it's... You know, it's unfortunately the, you know, the, the brain is, is the one area that we still understand the least. And uh, it's good. We've learned a lot that um, the brain is, has, there's a lot of plasticity in the brain and that people uh, can have pretty severe traumatic brain injuries and uh, make remarkable recoveries and, um, and rehabilitation techniques, especially um, active in, engagement uh, physically and cognitively, uh, we have uh, shown that you can really make improvements. But there's there's a tremendous amount of work that's still um, required in that area. Although there's, frankly, all fields of rehabilitation are really at a very nascent state. We only have about uh, 60 seconds left, Dr. Cooper. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. You know, there may be people wondering why, uh, well, the U.S. has been at war in Afghanistan since uh, 2001, uh, Iraq 2003, why it took two devastating wars to come up with this progress. And again, I have about 30 seconds left. Right. Every war brings progress in, in medicine. It's, it's un, I think the real reason it is because we tend to forget our veterans with disabilities and people with disabilities between conflicts. And we make those investments when conflicts occur. And we need to remember we, have, we are responsible for these people for the rest of their lives, and that could be the next 60 to 70 years. Uh, Dr. Rory Cooper, I want to thank you very much for uh, being with us. Dr. Cooper is Director of Human Engineer Research Laboratories at the University of Pittsburgh, and he appears in the film. Dr. Cooper, thank you very much for being with us today. 
My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And I should mention that the PBS documentary film Military Medicine Beyond the Battlefield will be shown tomorrow evening at 7.15 at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in watching the film, it has been on PBS uh, already. uh, But uh, if you would like to go out to AHAC, uh, you know, go to the website and uh, learn a little bit more. We'll have some information on our website WITF.org. Coming up a little bit later this week on Smart Talk, we'll talk about rock and roll of all things coming up a little bit later this week.